0: I'm Alexander Rose, the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation. Today's episode, like all of our episodes, features some snippets of music from Brian Eno's January 07003 Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now, an album that was created as part of our work in building the 10,000-year clock. The album explores the algorithm designed by Danny Hillis for the clock's ever-changing chimes. And these rings of the clock's bell were an especially good fit for today's talk with David Rooney and his new book, A History of Civilization in Twelve Clocks. I first met David when he was a curator at the Science Museum in London, and we were installing the first prototype of the clock over 20 years ago. It was a complex and difficult install, and David was incredible throughout that entire process, and he has had such a wonderful career and trajectory since that time. His new book is really a way into all the things that he's researched over the last 20 years in horology, including his work at the Greenwich Time Museum, the Science Museum, and now as an independent writer. Over the course of the next hour, David Rooney will engage directly with the inexorable ticking logic of clocks and civilization. Before we start, a quick reminder. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit and is entirely supported by donors and members like you. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of the Long Now Foundation and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you will be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Now, let's explore our next long-term thinker. Welcome, David Rooney.
1: Thanks, Alexander. And I'm really glad to have this opportunity to thank everyone involved with The Long Now, past and present. Because when I first encountered you, Alexander, and the prototype clock of the long now 21 years ago, I really had no idea just how much and in so many different ways the work of the foundation would influence the way that I think, not just about clocks and technology, but about civilizations. And all the conversations I've had with you since the year 2000 have just kept building for me the idea that clocks play a unique role in civilizations. They can illuminate our pasts and our futures in powerful ways, but not just illuminate our civilizational stories. I've come to see how much clocks have been deeply rooted actors in those stories. To see that clocks are now and always have been at the heart of everything we care about as humans. What's come to fascinate me most is what clocks mean, a question that's answered by looking at why people have made them, who's really sitting behind their faces. And the more I've learned, the more it's become obvious that the technical history of horology is only the start of the story. It's human motivation and how the world works that really interests me, which I guess helps explain why I started seeing time as a story centered on power, control, money, morality and belief. And in my book, which covers far more than I'll have time to touch on today and covers what I will talk about today in much greater detail, I look at how we can all understand our history and future better if we examine clocks as artifacts that shed light on aspects of civilizations that matter to us. Big themes, the ways we're governed, the beliefs we hold, the ways we tell stories. We can use the history of clocks to look at capitalism, at the exchange of knowledge, the building of empires and the radical changes to our lives brought by industrialization. Clocks mediate our sense of morality, our sense of right and wrong, and they help us construct our identities, our sense of who we are. And with clocks, I think we'll have to look unflinchingly at life, death, war and peace. But to do that, I also think we benefit from expanding our definition of what the word clock means. Of course, understanding clock technology is crucial in these big stories and different technologies enable different civilization level outcomes. But using the word clock to mean the geared mechanical devices invented in Europe in the 13th century and all the similar devices we've made since, is limiting. I wanted to zoom right out, so that we might spot bigger and longer patterns through history and across geography and civilizations. So I use the word clock to mean any human-made device with the purpose of tracking the passage of time. That includes sundials, hourglasses, water clocks, crowing roosters, time-finding telescopes, time signals, wristwatches, whatever. Because to say that big, powerful, mechanical clocks were invented in Europe in the 13th century hides the fact, for instance, that big, powerful, mechanical clocks were constructed by Islamic makers long before that. They were water clocks, not weight-driven geared clocks, but they were no less significant in shaping our world. And in the modern age, to think of clocks as devices we can easily see in our everyday lives occludes the countless devices hidden from view to most. GPS satellites or high security data centers are just two locations where clocks live and where timing has transformed and been transformed by the modern world. But among all that, I think there's a thread that unites pretty much all the stories that I cover in the book. And it's a thread that has two ends. At One end, people have always used clocks to control us and keep us in order. But at the other end, people have also always resisted the power clocks have over us, or rather resisted the people that clocks have been proxies for. And I certainly hope a Long Now audience would be sympathetic to the idea that while clocks might oppress us, clocks can and will save us as well. So in exploring that wider story of control and resistance, I'm gonna focus today on three clocks. The clock at Greenwich is an early electric clock set in the middle of a park the Mumbai clock is set in a tower in the city centre. And the Edinburgh clock didn't tell the time at all. It was used to drive a telescope. But all three clocks had one thing in common. There were sites of resistance. They were targets of violent attack because of what, or rather who, they stood for. The story behind the Greenwich episode began far away from London. The last two decades of the 19th century saw a series of anarchist-inspired terrorist attacks hit countries across Europe. In November 1884, an international diplomatic conference was held at Washington DC that selected Greenwich's world-famous observatory as the prime meridian of the world, the origin for all time and space measurement, the place whose time would set the beat for the whole world. Now, the reason given for selecting Greenwich was a practical one. Something like 75% of the world's ships by tonnage used charts based on the Greenwich Meridian. And that was because the London chart makers were the most prolific. So, selecting the Greenwich Meridian was seen to inconvenience the fewest people. The only major country attending the Washington conference to abstain from the vote for Greenwich was France. And the conference opened what was to become a running sore in the psyche of the French nation. At the time, the French delegate lobbied hard for the decision to be reversed. And later, France just refused to recognise the results of the conference. French commentators saw it as an act of hostile imperialism on the part of Britain. And I think it's easy to see their point, although you might well disagree. In January 1885, just a few weeks after the Washington Meridian Conference shone a spotlight on his observatory, The astronomer royal at Greenwich, William Christie, wrote to his government, worried about possible bomb attacks on his buildings. Just three weeks later, an anonymous letter was received by the authorities containing threats to blow up St. Paul's Cathedral, prompting them to close off the cathedral's clock and bell chamber, fearing a symbolic act of violence against the clock. And it remained closed for years. By late 1893, Anarchist terrorists were particularly active in France, culminating in a bombing of the Chamber of Deputies in Paris that December. Then, on the evening of Monday the 12th of February, 1894, an anarchist threw a bomb into the crowded cafe of the Grand Hotel Terminu in the Rue Saint-Lazare in Paris, next to a major railway station. Twenty people were injured in the explosion, and one of them later died from his injuries. Three days later... In England, an explosion was heard across Greenwich. The Royal Observatory Gate Porter and two of its astronomers raced out towards a path where they could see smoke rising. There they found the park keeper and two pupils from a local boys' school who'd been first on the scene. First sight, there didn't appear to be much wrong. A young man, later identified as Marshal Bourdan, was kneeling on the path by railings, perfectly still, with his head bowed but then he fell forward. He was taken to a nearby hospital where he died 25 minutes later. Marshal Baudin was a French anarchist and he knew Emile Henry, the person who had attacked the Grand Hotel in Paris three days earlier, very well. Marshal Baudin had been carrying a bomb to the Greenwich Observatory. He was only metres away from his target with the bomb primed in his hand when he tripped and fell forward onto it it exploded and killed him. Just around the corner from where he was fatally injured are the gates that lead into the observatory's large courtyard. And there, beside the gates, to this day, is the large, round, white dial of the observatory's electric public clock, set in a wall at head height behind glass. It's an official clock that had displayed Britain's standardised, authoritative Greenwich Mean Time since the mid-19th century. In 1884, when the Western world's government representatives had decided that all the people of Earth should march to the beat of one clock, it was this clock. It was the powerful, living embodiment of all that anarchists like Bourdin despised. Authority and hierarchy. This was to have been the end of Marshal Bourdin's journey that day in 1894 if he hadn't tripped and bungled the plan. Marshal Bourdain had been moments away from bombing Greenwich Mean Time itself. Emile Henry, the Paris bomber, said this at his trial. He said, You have hanged us in Chicago, decapitated us in Germany, garroted us in Jerez, shot us in Barcelona, guillotined us in Montbrison and in Paris, but what you can never destroy is anarchy. Its roots are too deep born in a poisonous society which is falling apart. Anarchism, he said, is a violent reaction against the established order. And Henri's choice of words there is telling. Established order means political institutions and structures. But it also refers to the work of measurement scientists, like the astronomers working at time-finding observatories. Their work is in establishing order. Then as now, it was impossible to separate science from society, impossible to see the work of any institution, like an observatory, as purely scientific, rather than bound up in politics and wider culture. The Greenwich Observatory clock is an imperial clock, and clocks and empires go hand in hand. In 1615, Walter Raleigh had said, "'Whosoever commands the sea commands the trade. Whosoever commands the trade of the world commands the riches of the world, and consequently, the world itself. The story of longitude, so deftly told by Davis Sobel and others, is now widely known. Accurate timekeeping on board the ships of maritime empires enabled safe and accurate navigation. That meant portable precision timekeepers, or chronometers, carried on board ships, providing a fixed time reference from which east-west positions could be calculated, backed up by the lunar distance method of timekeeping, which used the moon and stars like the hands of a giant celestial clock. Both temporal technologies had been developed in the 18th century, and by about 1810 had become widespread. That story is now famous, partly because it's pretty heroic. But a story that's less often remarked on is the vast infrastructure of timing that had to be built across the globe in order to measure and then distribute the precise time that sailors needed in order to set their chronometers right during long voyages. But I think infrastructure is pretty important too, which is why I spend so much time studying it and exploring it. The Time Ball, set up at the Greenwich Observatory in 1833 to transmit time to sailors waiting in the river Thames below, fairly well known. But the same year, out of sight of the British Imperial capital, another time ball was erected by the British government. That one was on the coast of Southern Africa at the Cape of Good Hope. Before too long, it was joined by literally hundreds of time signalling structures acting as frontier foot soldiers around the coastlines of all empires. And let me be clear about the scale of this infrastructure of time In 1908, the British Navy carried out a survey that listed a total of 200 time signals that could be found on coastlines or in ports around the world. They were usually time balls like the one at Greenwich or, built for a very different reason, the one in New York's Times Square. But sometimes they took the form of time discs or time guns or time signalling flags. 200 of them, and the document reveals the astonishing geographical reach of the world's maritime powers. It was by far the world's biggest network of time signalling stations, but by 1908, the year the survey was published, America was fast catching up as a world power, having built 22 coastal time signals on its own soil, with a further two in its port possessions in the Philippines. Each and every one of these time signal installations was a major undertaking involving complex surveying, engineering, land acquisition, the recruitment and management of labor forces, legal negotiation, maintenance, astronomical observation, instrument making, and a huge amount of expertise developed over decades or centuries. Each one was a heavy investment and a long-term liability and taken together with the tens of thousands of shipboard chronometers for which they were built, and the global network of chronometer testing stations, chronometer and clock makers, retailers, supply depots, not to mention the dozens of government astronomical observatories that found the time in the first place to distribute across this network. We can see a vast global physical presence of time, of clocks in one form or another, that's been all but forgotten. Plot all these time signals and chronometers on a map of the world, and you can see how clocks enabled empires. Of course, clocks being used to control populations was hardly a new feature of civilizations. As far back as we care to look, we can find evidence, both of clocks being used to keep us in order and of people resisting. We could go back over 2,200 years to see a good example of this. In the year 263 BCE, the first public sundial was installed in ancient Rome. It was set on a tall column at the heart of the Roman Forum, right at the centre of the city. It's long since been lost, but similar ones have survived, including one from Pompeii. It had been captured as war booty from the city of Catania, it showed that Rome was on top and the crowd had gone wild the day it was first revealed by the Sicily war hero, Manius Valerius Maximus. But the people soon changed their mind, because Valerius's public sundial, set high atop its triumphal column, was just the first of many installed across the city, each designed to regulate and control the daily activities of Rome's citizens. And they very quickly became uneasy at the intrusion of this new timekeeping technology. Rome's playwrights and critics poured scorn on the new devices. Writing just a few years after the first sundial had been installed, one exasperated playwright made a character exclaim, the gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish ours. Confound him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small pieces. The character went on. You know, when I was a boy, my stomach was the only sundial, by far the best and truest compared to all of these. It used to warn me to eat, but now what there is isn't eaten unless the sun says so. Finally, the character said, in fact, towns so stuffed with sundials that most people crawl along shriveled up with hunger. Doesn't that just sound so modern? That idea that we can't even eat until the clock allows us? That clocks are cutting and hacking our days into smaller and smaller pieces and controlling what we can and cannot do? It sounds like the Industrial Revolution. It could have been written yesterday. A later writer described Rome's sundials as hateful and called for the columns on which they were fixed to be torn down with crowbars. And as well as seeing them like the factory or office clock, telling us when we can break for a meal, we should also think of these Roman sundials as early clock towers, mounted up high, looking over the people and standing for Rome's ruling classes themselves. In ancient imperial China, towers carrying drums or bells loomed large over towns and cities, often centred on marketplaces. Anybody caught on the streets after the night bells sounded might be arrested and beaten. Across Imperial Japan, from at least the 8th century onwards, each major city had its water clock, or clepsidra, and a tall tower from which time was sounded to the public. Clock towers were part of the ordering infrastructure of cities. We now know about the coastal time balls that helped Imperial ships navigate across the oceans. And by this time, the coast of Africa was lined with lofty time signals. But these tall towers weren't the only temporal infrastructure of empire. Wherever the colonizers went, clock towers, high over the people's heads, accompanied them on their march. In Southeastern Australia, from the 1820s onwards, British colonizers engaged in an energetic program of clock tower building, as they imported Western ideas of discipline and order but it was in India that the British clock tower project reached its greatest and most zealous heights. Britain's grip on India tightened hard in the late 1850s after a bloody uprising in 1857 against its rule. Building construction formed a crucial part of this governing programme and tall clock towers with loud bells sounding the Westminster chimes were commissioned for every major Indian town occupied by the British and they were impossible to miss. The clock tower built in the 1870s as part of Mayo College, a new boarding school campus at Ujmir in today's Rajasthan, intended to be the Eden of India, showed the power of clock towers to represent the ruling classes by proxy. At nearly 30 metres in height, the Mayo College clock loomed over the area. It was visible to anybody approaching Ajmir long before the city itself came into view. And just take a look at it. It was topped by a huge iron crown, just like the one worn by Queen Victoria, who was proclaimed Empress of India in 1877, the year that construction of Mayo College began. The clock tower was the Empress, commanding over her domain. In total, over 100 clock towers were built in India during the colonial period, not all by British colonialists, but nevertheless an astonishing construction programme. But people resist. I told you I wanted to focus on three clocks today. And the first was the Greenwich Observatory gate clock that was the target of resistance in 1894. While the second clock was in Mumbai, or Bombay as it was then called. In 1898, four years after the Greenwich bombing, the Indian city was gripped by rioting and strikes by the native Hindu and Muslim population, resisting repressive public health measures being carried out by the local British government. At the geographical, social, and strategic heart of the city, dividing the native and European areas, sat the British-built Crawford Market. Rising above it, overlooking a busy intersection and facing Bombay's police station, was the market's clock tower. On the evening of Friday the 11th of March, 1898, as anti-colonial unrest grew across the city, native Indian attackers with rifles opened fire on the clock destroying one of its brightly illuminated dials. A long-running dispute about time standardisation in Bombay in the 1880s had meant that public clocks had taken on a particular symbolic meaning in the city. Remember that this was the decade of the International Meridian Conference, and perhaps you thought I was overstating the case that choosing Greenwich time as the time base for the world was an act of imperial violence. Well, the British tried to force a standard time, actually Madras time, onto Bombay. It had been resisted, but the argument was still fresh in the memories of the Bombay population in 1898, when the Crawford Market Clock was attacked. Seven years after that, in 1905, arguments about standard time in the city re-emerged, as the British government tried to unify all of India's population under a single time zone, five and a half hours ahead of Greenwich. At a time of intense political tension over British colonialism in India, Standard Time in Bombay took on ever more powerful symbolic meaning. The choice of time kept on the public clocks across the city, Bombay time, Madras time, or the new Indian Standard Time, was an expression of colonial allegiance or resistance. In January 1906, the largest textile mill in Bombay changed its clocks to the new standard time without informing its 4,500 workers. When they turned up that morning to begin their shifts and discovered what had happened, they immediately went on strike and began to pelt the mill's clock tower with stones. Public clocks in Bombay had become symbols of British domination. The Indian people had resisted. It wasn't clocks they were fighting, it was the Viceroy And wherever we find clocks, we can see the exercise of power. The world's largest sundial was built in the Indian city of Jaipur in the 1730s for an ambitious Maharaja, Sawai Jai Singh II. It's still the largest sundial in the world today. It was part of a suite of monumental astronomical observatories that Jai Singh built across India, not just to find the secrets of the heavens, but to consolidate his own rule and project power. What Jai Singh had built at Jaipur was a huge edifice taking the form of a great triangular wall, fashioned out of stone and plaster, aligned perfectly north to south, with its upper surface angled exactly to the latitude of Jaipur, so it was parallel with the Earth's axis. It occupied a footprint of 40 by 44 metres, dug more than three metres into the ground and rose 23 metres into the air, which is a quarter of the height of London's Big Ben, the construction of which began just over a century later. There was a long flight of steps running up the centre of the triangular wall towards its summit, which allowed astronomers, including Jai Singh himself, to make careful observations. And he had the structure topped with a roofed pavilion in which the observer could work, protected from the hot Jaipur sun. Alongside this monumental, central-angled gnomon, or shadow indicator, sat two lower structures known as quadrants onto whose curved surfaces the shadow of the gnomon fell, with finely marked scales divided into two-second intervals. And the whole thing was aligned perfectly to tolerances of just a few millimetres so that it could keep time to within a couple of seconds. And when it was completed in 1735, it was impossible to ignore. One mid-18th century visitor described the sundial as astonishing and commented that on its summit, there is an observation tower that overlooks the whole town and so tall that one cannot be there without one's head turning. Who would you have seen there more often than not? The Maharaja himself literally towering over his people. And he wasn't the first ambitious ruler embroiled in local power struggles to build a monumental observatory to project power over a region. In 1259, in Maragha in today's Iran, the Mongol leader Hulagu Khan built a huge observatory the year after he'd sacked Baghdad and ended the Islamic Golden Age. In 15th century Samarkand, in today's Uzbekistan, the Timurid ruler Beg built an observatory that became the most revered in the world. He too had grown up in a world of conflict and a family war for dynastic succession. In Paris in 1667, Louis XIV founded an observatory that towered over its surroundings. He was just 26 and that same year, he embarked on a punishing half-century campaign of war against the other powers of Europe. The Greenwich Observatory of 1675 occupied a similarly lofty position and its founding came as the king Charles II was bankrolling a violent gold and slave trading empire in Africa another network of time-finding installations built to project power and keep populations in order a global network which like the others brought many benefits but which excluded whole sectors of society but people resist I'd like to conclude with the third clock of the talk. In May 1913, a bomb explosion ripped through Scotland's Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. A large earthenware jar packed with gunpowder had been placed in the middle story of the Western Telescope dome next to an iron staircase. It was connected to a 30-foot fuse that had been run down the staircase to the room below, which housed the telescope chronograph, a clockwork device for timing observations. The damage caused by the explosion was extensive. Windows and doors had been blown out. Plaster ceilings were shattered. Some of the staircase was blown off. Splinters of glass were recovered 100 feet from the building. The heavy floor of the telescope room, directly above the bomb, had been knocked off the corbels that supported it and had been badly damaged. The driving clock, which kept the telescope fixed on a star while the Earth rotated, was nearly destroyed. There was little doubt which group had carried out the bombing that night, although the individuals involved were never identified or caught. Two notes were left at the scene. The first read, From the beginning of the world, every stage of human progress has been from scaffold to scaffold and from stake to stake. The other said, How beggarly appears argument before defiant deed, votes for women. This bombing was the work of suffragettes. And once again, this was an act of resistance against global structures of power carried out by those excluded from the benefits of those structures. For women campaigning for universal suffrage, as with anarchists fighting against authority and hierarchy, and with people living under violently repressive colonialists, some clocks could look like tyrants. In 1944, the Canadian writer George Woodcock wrote an essay called The Tyranny of the Clock. He said, the clock represents an element of mechanical tyranny in the lives of modern men more potent than any individual exploiter or any other machine. The idea of clocks as tyrants has stayed with us ever since because clocks can be made by tyrants to enact their control and coercion in all the myriad ways we've explored today. But this is a positive message, believe it or not. It's a message of hope for the future. People aren't all bad. Clocks have brought great benefits to humankind across time and civilizations. But as with all power structures, some people benefit more than others. Some people have more control than others. But we can all resist Clocks are tools at our disposal. If other people are using them to control our lives, we can use them ourselves too, to good effect, just like the long now has been doing since the 1990s, and just like people have been doing through history. Let's see clocks for what they are. They're proxies for humans. So let's look behind the faces of our clocks and see who we're really dealing with. (laughs) And if we don't like who we see, let us build different clocks.
2: Thank you so much, David. Um, and please excuse my voice, but I'd like to welcome you from uh, your place in uh, Greenwich, UK. Welcome.
1: It's great, great to see you, Xander. Hi there.
2: Well, I'd like to welcome in uh, Kevin Kelly and Stuart Brandt. Hello. Hey, greetings. Great to have you both. Um, to, uh, do one of you have a question for us, David?
3: I have a question, um, David, and that is, um, what do you make of the fact that today, um, almost any electronic device is keeping time, Uh, and in fact, um, GPS, the way that we navigate is actually just basically running off of timestamps. So that kind of pervasive way in which everything is now keeping time, what what do you make of that? (laughs)
1: Um, th- that's a great question. It's something that, that, again, kind of built and built as I was um, researching this. Um, if if we consider GPS satellites, or if we consider global navigation satellites, so including the, the Russian system GLONASS, the Chinese system Beidou, um, European system Galileo coming on stream, there's probably, I don't know, 100 satellites overhead right now, and all they are is flying clocks. All they are is each one carrying maybe three or four um, super precise atomic clocks beaming time signals to Earth so that if you're using it for navigation, a trilaterate position to, you know, centimetres now or, or better. But they've also become the time signal for the world. They've replaced many of the systems like Ruth Belleville um, of terrestrial time distribution. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to work out There can't be any other clocks that have ever been made in human history that have been looked at more (laughs) than those maybe 300 clocks which are right over our heads right now. And that pervasiveness, where every infrastructure in the modern world relies on time, uh, whether that's telecoms or power distribution or financial trading the stock markets, you know, they all rely on these timestamps or or, temp- or or synchronization by clocks. And most of them now rely on these 100 satellites and they military technologies which are in the control of basically three major powers. And I find that terrifying. I f- and, and, and one of the reasons, and, and therefore interesting, <laughs> of course, to study, and one of the reasons why I find it so interesting is how hidden they are. How, you know, right up until, I don't know, maybe the middle of the 20th century, we knew where our clocks were and we we celebrated them. Right. So so those clocks that the clocks which kept stock markets on time from the 17th century onwards were huge, tall, looming clock towers. We saw some of them on the film. People could see them, hear them. And they were they were part of our lives. And, And then clocks started to disappear and time started to disappear. And, and now there are those clocks which are embedded in data centers, thousands of clocks in data centers, which are running everything from cloud computing to high-frequency trading, and clocks in satellites, clocks everywhere. The ones on our, the, the ones on our wrists or on our office walls, uh, they, they, they almost don't matter anymore. It's what clocks do for us now is astonishing. And, and it's something which um, interests me greatly. Yeah.
3: It's, it is it is interesting that um, a lot of the clocks that you mentioned were on towers, and that gave them some authority. And basically, the satellite ones are just really tall towers. <laughs> they're, they're so tall and above us that we can't see them, but they're still towering over us. And so there's this idea of the clock tower that's sort of interesting.
2: Well, I, I think what's also interesting about the GPS satellite network is when it was first introduced and made public, they actually... They had a they had a scrambling signal on it because they were afraid that time could be used as a weapon, effectively, which it can if it's used for positioning something like a missile. Um, And, you know, after a while, there was an algorithm that defeated it. But um, this idea of time as a weapon was extremely present when the GPS network was first was first introduced. Go ahead, Stuart.
4: Uh, David, you know, it was great to see you back when we installed the Long Now first iteration of Long Now clock at the Science Museum. Uh, And I just now finished your extremely wonderful book. Um, I was going to ask about GPS being uh, the sort of modern version of all of those uh, uh, ball dropping clocks all over the world of the sort of globalization, synchronization techniques and longitude and so on. Um, But you're very kind that you end your book with um, some sense of of what our clock uh, means to you, the the Long Now clock that we're building in Texas, uh, the one that we installed there at the Science Museum that you were responsible for winding up. Uh, What does Long Now's clock mean to you? Because it's not about synchronization like all
1: these other things. Um, I mean, it's been 21 years now. <laughs> and 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 when i said at the, at the start of the film that 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 meeting you and and being involved peripherally with that clock at that f- from the, from at that formative time of my life and career
0: hmm.
1: um has has absolutely guided my way of thinking throughout and and it, and and what what the, what the clock and the clock concept has done is is many-fold. The the idea of, well, the idea of looking longer and seeing everything right now better um, is a very powerful uh, message, which is catalyzed by the clock. Um, And the idea that I mentioned that I talked about in, in the film about resistance, about how it's very easy to get, I think, fatalistic about the role that clocks have played in civilizations, that they oppress us, other people oppress us, and they have power over us, which we cannot resist, um, I feel very uncomfortable with. And what the Long Now clock has helped me see is that clocks, clocks can be used as um, tools to resist um, that control as well, as well as clocks being targets for resistance. So I said at the end, you know, if, if we don't like what clocks do, the more we find out about them, and I think we should find out more about them, then let's make different clocks. Mm. You know, clocks are human-made constructs. We can choose to make different ones, as you did.
4: Well, it occurs to me that um, yeah, lots of clocks are about synchronization. This one is not. Lots of clocks are about reliability. Um, and this one definitely is about reliability in the sense that Alexander and Danny designed it and built it to be reliably keeping time for, at minimum, as you point out in the book, 10,000 years, hopefully two or three times that eventually. And, um, it, you know, we were tempted to do some kind of calendar or things like that, and it's certainly astronomically based, and it has the array of planets and whatnot in the middle. But somehow the... The fact that there's a tick that you hear, and then another one, and another one—they're slow in the ten-thousand-year clock, but they're—they're they're in your face, and um, and also size, like Big Ben or like the the one in Mecca, uh, that it is—you know—hundreds of feet tall inside a mountain. The monumentality seems to be part of what it's about. What's your sense of how these various elements? are part of what we understand in terms of the instruments that represent time
1: to us. I think, um, well, I'm not sure what I think about that. I think, I think the idea of... Um, uh, there's something about the idea of clocks being proxies for, for us involves them being alive, which hmm. this might sound glib, but the idea of clocks having heartbeats Ah! Slow, slow or fast, uh-huh. helps us see them as, um, as, as one of us, which calendars don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, so the tick of the I... clock, even the slow tick of the clock, makes it human, mm-hmm. um, and we care about humans. Hmm. And, and then the monumentality um, extends, extends that in the, in the vertical axis you know, so when I was talking about clock towers being the empress of India or people commanding over us, um, um, what you've made is, is, a, is a clock which has the same presence but plays a different role. And what I always find
2: kind of amazing is, as we were researching things like the the pendulum and the escapement in the clock for for this clock, the ten thousand year clock. Um, And then you look at something like a Rolex and how many times it ticks, um, usually before, you know, in 20 years or so between service intervals. And then you look at you know, animal hearts or human hearts, they all kind of have the same number of ticks in them in terms of the order of magnitude of number of times these things tick. And um, and so there is this very kind of human um, or natural cycle that even makes its way into these very mechanical systems, um, at least the ones that are engineered well. And certainly, um, you know, the entire clock team that's been building, um, especially the escapement um, that I'm just a small part of that team, the, the escapement and the, and the pendulum work is something of the, some of the most detailed work that, that, that I've ever even witnessed to be a part of and, and watching, you know, I believe that when we were doing some tests on our pendulum just the other week, we actually could t- see the, the earthquake in Haiti from L.A. in the data. So, it's a you know, it's, that's, how, that's how kind of sensitive some of these systems are. And it's, um, it's pretty amazing to watch, watch them be built, and they, but they start to take on this notion of, of a very organic nature, um, which is very cool kevin do you have
3: a last question yeah i have a question um in the coming decades and beyond we are likely to spend more time off of our planet and i'm wondering about um timekeeping in space and maybe even the moon um whether you've researched what is happening there and and whether you had a recommendation about keeping time in space or other planets um if you kind of imagine this starting anew, so, okay, we're going to go to the moon and show what, what would be a good way to do timekeeping on the moon?
1: That's a really great question. And, um, do you have an easier one? <laughs> I mean, this, this is something, not something that I've given, um, thought to, although, um, one of the organizations that I'm involved with, um, the, from the 17th century, the worshipful company of clockmakers, the, the kind of the London guild of clockmakers, um, uh, was involved in a competition for people thinking about I think it was a Martian clock and to think True. through this is this is for teenagers kind of design and engineering um, to think through what what do you need to think about when thinking about time off a planet uh, whether that's everything to do with the fact we've got our hardwired circadian rhythms w- w- you know would would mm-hmm. would they need a change would we need to evolve um, how long would that mm-hmm. take? Uh, what what are the what are the natural cycles of the place where we now are? I guess my only comment would be to think about um, like like a, a timeless place on earth um or or a place where time is very differently experienced, which is the poles. Um, and so for instance Antarctica, um where the concept of earth rotation time just just it, it just doesn't apply in the same way. And so what time systems, if time systems are, useful as we discussed earlier in not just knowing the time but in making other things work at uh, what time do they use um i think the answer was um variably either you know greenwich time utc or new zealand time if it's the closest place but i think the, the question that you ask kevin is is a really profound one because it forces us to think through all of the ways in which mm-hmm. time plays a role in our lives as 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 human animals and also in in our societies in our, in faith um in um, in civilizations, but also in kind of technological development, what the clock's enable them to, to happen?
2: Well, I want to thank Stuart and Kevin for joining us. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to go on and take a few more questions from our, from our audience. Um, and as we, as we do that, um, what's your take on, this, on the way that, um, that, that the politicization of time zones and how that works in certain countries where there are no time zones versus places that just don't have enough power to push the time zone out of their way?
1: I mean, time standardization absolutely fascinates me and I've, I've, um, in so many different ways. And the, the way I see it is um, uh, that time is inherently political, or rather the use of time in societies is inherently political. And so that it, so I don't see it as something kind of scientific, which then got politicized. It was always political. It could never be anything other. So the idea in 1884 at that conference in Washington, D.C., which came up with the idea of a single Prime meridian for the world, which led to, I mean, it was complicated what was dis- discussed at that meeting and subsequently, but it led to the idea of u- uniform 24 hour, 24 different time zones, each an hour wide, all indexed back to a fixed line, a fixed meridian, a fixed north south line, and that one was chosen to be Greenwich. And of course, as you say, you just look at any time zone chart from 1884 to the present day, and there's not a straight line in sight. Um, even the international date line, the 180 degrees line, which passes mostly through the Pacific Ocean, um, is the most astonishingly acrobatic line, because of course there are plenty of of people and lands uh, in that area. So so standardization of time across territories is highly political. The time that you keep on your clock is, in other words, your time zone, broadly defined, is an expression, can be an expression of allegiance, it can be an expression of national identity, it can be an expression of resistance. Some examples uh, um, being China, which is about five hours of time wide, but it has one time zone, which is Beijing time, and that's quite far to the east. Um, That was one of the first acts of Mao Zedong uh, in 1949, um, was to unify China's time to one time zone and to make that Beijing time. Um, And for that to then get rooted in the psyche of Chinese people, that Beijing time represents um, the Chinese identity, the Chinese people, that it became patriotic to see time in China as Beijing time. And then there have been times when time zones have been changed to make a political statement. Um, Venezuela, Hugo Chavez in, I think, 2007 changed the time by half an hour. That was reversed a few years later. Um, North Korea, more recently, 2015, changed the time by half an hour. The point is, of course, that the time kept on clocks isn't the right time, whatever that turns out to mean. Um, It's been an increasing fiction since we moved from um, a sundial-based system to an equal hours-based system, not just when mechanical clocks were invented. It was long before that. But we decided we wanted equal hours rather than seasonal hours. Um, So that was one shift. Then, of course, standardization in the 19th and 20th centuries, and then daylight saving, which moves us an hour um, uh, ahead. And then then the final fiction, which is really interesting, is the leap second, which tethers our time right now to Earth rotation time, even though it's kept by atomic atomic clocks. And if the leap second is abolished, we cut ties with the rotation of the Earth.
2: And I think, you know, what some of the other questions that did come up um, that I'll just close with is, you know, about timestamps themselves. And, and now we're seeing cryptographic blockchains. Effectively, these are clocks with kind of, a, you know, an irregular tick of a timestamp, but they're now driving whole economies. And, um, and so I think it's going to be really interesting the way that plays out and look forward to talking with you about it, hopefully at some point in the future.
1: Most definitely.
2: And thank you all for joining us with that talk. And we'll see you in the future. Thank you.
0: Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003, Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Danielle Engelman, Jonathan Davis, Andrew Werner, Forrest Pound, Justin Oliphant, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who makes each of these conversations possible. Talk to you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring The Long View.